Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where we interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. This week's show, delighted to be joined by Patrick Clark, the Group Treasurer Excellence Logging. Good mate of mine. We've put a few beers down and talked a lot about treasury over the years, so he's got some good war stories for some of you guys listening there. Excellence Logging itself is a specialist oil field services company. I get Pat again to describe a little bit. Yeah, founded in sort of 2015, you know, benefits, experience management teams, 35 countries you know, across the world. So you can do all that stuff. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's take you back. He's now, again, I apologize, guys. He's in Australia and we'll, we'll let him off with this. But take us back to the dim, distant parts of Australia and how you first discovered maybe Treasury, finance, and, and over to you, sir. Oh, hi, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, uh, lived here 15 years, still haven't lost the accent, but no. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try my best to be, to be coherent. <laughs> I ask the interview question uh, every time I'm hiring someone, how did you get into treasury? And uh, no one ever says they wanted to grow up being a treasurer. Yeah. Most people aren't even aware of the profession, I, I don't think. I actually started off, I did an economics degree in, in Adelaide where I grew up. At the end of that, I hadn't really planned ahead of what I was actually going to do for a job. I think like most young people, I just assumed somebody would hire me. And because I'd done economics, I thought, well... I'll do the Australian version of the civil service exam. So I did that, did very well, and then got hired at the Australian Taxation Office in, in Adelaide. And my job for the first 18 months was data entry for tax returns. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I, learnt the, I learnt the hard way. <laughs> One of my first lessons is if, if you enter a job that you don't think it's, it's what you're after, don't stick it out. The only upside I had was that's where I met my wife. So it had, it had a, okay. yeah. a beneficial side. After about two years, I, I'd had enough and I just, decided I just looked up you know I'd done I'd done economics I knew about foreign trade I thought foreign exchange that might be something maybe I'll apply for a a job at a bank for a, an analyst job or something like mm, that, mm. Uh, which, which didn't go very well. And I saw an ad for a job in Sydney for a company called BOC Gases, a traditional English company. I applied from it in Adelaide and got the interview the following week. So I got in my Mitsubishi Lancer and drove 2,000 kilometres across Australia, stopping off somewhere in the middle of nowhere in a hotel overnight, got into a state, what I learned later was a very dodgy area of North Sydney in a hotel, got up the next morning, put on a suit, did the interview and got the job the next day and that was as treasury analyst at BOC Gases in Sydney and I've pretty much been in and out of treasury for the last 25 years. Awesome so that was your first introduction what was that sort of role like you did good all-round treasury manager role just in yeah ego is treasury? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was analyst. I mean, I'll be honest, two weeks into the job, the uh, treasurer actually said he felt sorry for me because he got me for about £5,000 cheaper than I probably should have asked for. So I learned a bit about salary negotiation there. Yeah, very much treasury analyst, then up to treasury manager. The Australian office dealt with the Asian and Far East operations of BOC, which is a, you know, the, the global uh, industrial gases firm. So we did all sorts of cool stuff for a young treasurer. You know, we issued our first MTN program. We had commercial paper, a lot of foreign exchange risk going around. Even just doing the accounts with, you know, the statutory accounts was quite interesting just because of all the, the different businesses. I learned very early on about very clever tax schemes that uh, companies put in place and that we'd done a sudden lease back on all of the gas cylinders for Southeast Asia. And that was seven years ago. And uh, someone had just forgotten to make a lease payment because nobody who did the trade was actually still there. So technically for about three days until we settled, there was some poor leasing company that owned about 45 million gas cylinders in places as 
easy to obtain as Malaysia, China, Japan, and so forth. So yeah, I mean, th- those, those were the days when I think uh, regional treasuries had a lot more power than they probably do these days, which is a, a good and a bad thing. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a great introduction to treasury and that, yeah, that, that sort of took, took my fancy and made me sort of fall in love with what we do. And then you moved on. So then joined CNH. A sign of things to come in that uh, BOC decided to centralise their treasury operations in to the UK. So I've, I've sort of been the branch guy and the head office guy. And I'll be honest, I, as the head office guy, you always want more control. Hmm. You want to manage all of those tasks. And I mean, let's face it, in, in 2021, that is the generally the ideal model. But it did also mean that you know, there's, a, there's a lot of good treasurers around different parts of the globe who suddenly found their jobs were essentially cash management reporting. Mm. Now, CNH, I'll be honest, it spoiled me. It was, it was Case Corporation, which is a tractor manufacturer. They compete with John Deere and Caterpillar. And because those are two brands most people know and Case, you've probably never heard of. I joined when it was a single A credit and left when it was double B plus. Wow. Yeah, th- th- those are interesting days. Um, it actually ended up being bought by Fiat, uh, which we at the th- thought at the time was not, not necessarily the, uh, the the best parent for a company that's struggling. <laughs> well, what we'll do is actually we, Andrea Paulus, the executive VP and group treasurer at CNH, he, I interviewed him, what, three months ago? So I'll put, put a link to his because he's sort of, he's been through it as well. So as you say, it's a, it was a challenging group. It was, but I mean, again, that was, you know, I was the Australian treasurer or I think director of Australian treasury was the official title. And yeah, we, we had uh, commercial paper programs. We had bonds. I mean, most of the business was, or the treasury activity was, there was a leasing arm called Case Credit, hmm. which had sort of taken the GE credit model, which uh, had its issues as well. Hmm. And essentially leasing tractors to farmers, which is generally a good business because you can, if, if you need to repossess a tractor, you generally know where it is. <laughs> it, it's not easy to move and you know where the, where the farmer is yeah. so we actually did the first asset-backed securitization in australia for leases and that was back in the late 90s when things like asset-backed securitization and mortgage-backed securitization were actually good things mm-hmm. you know we, i could see how it got corrupted it's, it's a pity because it was it was a really good method of financing and it's an extremely interesting task for a treasurer to do i mean there's a lot of documentation and paperwork and so forth you know it, it was it was good to sort of you know, get your name on a, a new type of deal and and given the time zones there was a lot of autonomy and yeah and i mean it's a really great people i spend a lot of time in the states with them i'm still friends with quite a few of them it, it, it was a little bit wild west you know you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden you're triple B and the CP market's dried up a bit. And then a couple of months later, you're double B and it's gone and you're hitting your backup revolver mm. lines. And then all of a sudden you're, you're trying to negotiate with your auditors who were Arthur Anderson and China's fairly easy to negotiate with in terms of loss levels. And then, yeah, one day you wake up and you're junk oh, and uh, you've, you've hit all your lines, your covenants are under, under task. But the thing is, you know, we got through it. I mean, it did help that fit. Us. But, you know, it's one of those, you, you went through the full credit spectrum, you learned all the different ways you can finance, different ways of, you know, finding out how bankers, relationship managers will deal with you when one day you're an A and next day you're a double B. And just built up some friendships there that last a long time with the bankers. You know, I do remember, you know, it's one of the one of my more prouder moments is that uh, when I eventually left and, and the main reason that is, you know, Fiat bought it, Fiat mm. were then running the treasury. They basically said the only reason they stuck with this was because uh, they could trust what was coming coming out of my mouth. You know, I think that's a, that's a key thing for a lot of treasurers is that, you know, you're representing the company to the banks and often you can think in the short term, you might get away with fudging a bit, but these relationships can last for years and if you're not trusted then mm-hmm. you really can't be a treasurer no. is, is the problem. and then you did sort of two more roles before coming to the uk how did that sort of pan out because you, you finished there because we had taken it over were they some more short term or you know what was the situation before you then came to our sunny shores 
Okay, so the first one was a career mistake one. Yeah, and I'll be honest, the, I don't think it's the same in 2021 in the in the UK, but I worked for a supermarket retailer called Woolworths, uh, which wasn't connected to the, the one over here. Mm. And treasury in a supermarket is very boring. Essentially, all the cash comes in on the weekend. You know, you, you have to organise the armoured trucks for the collections and so forth. But you generally know what the cash is going to be. And in a country like Australia, not a lot of your products that are coming in are imports. Most of the stuff you're selling is in local currency. So you've got limited foreign exchange risk. You're a very good credit. Cash management is essentially money gets banked into branches at a single bank. You count it in the morning, you send a report off, and that's pretty much it. So I'd gone from almost the wild west of treasury doing absolutely everything to being the sort of deputy treasurer. And I'll be honest, just you'd wake up in the morning and say, well, what special things can I do today to improve the business? And there just wasn't any. So I, I did a project with them. Uh, they called it Project Re fresh, which I think it was sort of a copy from Walmart where we would go through the business and just look at uh, the P&L line by line on how we could save expenses or costs out of the business. And I did a project on insurance, which sort of opened my eyes onto how that world works. So I learned a lot about the retail industry and it was a worthwhile experience. But yeah, if you like variety in your job, I'm not sure it's right uh, a, a, a supermarket's really the necessary the no. chain you want to do. From that point, I was, I was just finishing my MBA and I, I sort of got this notion to go to the UK. Ooh. Yeah. Try to think why. I mean, I just, I think Australia is a great place to grow up. I really, really, you know, I miss aspects of it, but it's just so far from anywhere. So growing up in Adelaide, which is the middle of nowhere and Sydney's fairly, you know, relatively exotic. But if you want to go on a holiday to just Bali or Indonesia or New Zealand, you're talking six, seven, nine hours in a plane. Mm. So I think it was all it was all about the travel. I think my wife wanted, I wanted to do that. So I decided to do a year at a company called Charles Parsons, which was a, a privately held firm owned by the Parsons family, who the last four CEOs were named Charles Parsons. So it was <laughs> but yeah, it, it imported um, fabric and textiles for women's fashion. So that was a sort of an interesting bit. And so that was my first group treasurer role of actually being the guy in charge. And I think that gave me you're on the you're on the pension fund trustees board, you're actually talking with the owners and the CFO and the controller and all those things. And I think that gave me the rounding I needed to be able to come try my hand in the UK and see how a newly minted MBA with uh, various treasury experience would go. And you, you did that and then you came to the UK, you started off with GE insurance, but then went into consulting. Give us a walk through those roles. Okay. So the GE consulting, look, when I first landed on these shores, I put on my my shirt and tie and suit, and I started talking to recruiters because I hadn't actually made contacts beforehand, which is not necessarily the cleverest thing. But you know, when you're young, you you always believe in your ability to just to get that through. Happened, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've told you this many a time, Mike. Most of the recruiters I met basically said, "What are you thinking? You've come from the colonies. There's no chance that you'll ever get a the sort of job Decent that you're, job. you're expecting." Mm. And yeah, it was discouraging. And I think it was that the, the one day I met you. I'm trying to remember where your office was. It always been more to do. So you're, you're a revelation. You actually said, "Well, you know, you've done this and you've done this, and yeah, these these might not be within reach, but you know, there's definitely opportunities to do to, to do things." So yeah. I think rather than tucking tail, I pressed on again. The GE job, it was, it was a contract job. Uh, it was their insurance arm. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. Met some uh, good people, but it was essentially a cash management job, just sort of being used to pay the bills whilst I looked around for what was going on in the UK. And just, it lasted longer than planned. I mean, I, I got a little bit discouraged again um, in terms of just getting back to a group treasurer level job or getting back to a sort of more senior job. I mean, I was, I was 30 at the time, going to 31, and you know, I had, had two master's degrees and six or seven years experience in treasury. I just sort of thought 
you know, that these sort of roles would come along. And, mm. yeah, and, it, and there's reasons why they, they, they do and they don't. The EY consulting job, I'll be honest, I was, I was four weeks away from giving up and we were just going to pack up and head back to Australia. Tail between our legs, this didn't work all as planned. But yeah, fortunately, that, that came along. And yeah, through them and then moving on to Accenture, I did uh, four years of, of treasury consulting, which I learned a lot. There's up and downs with consulting, which we'll probably touch on, on later. Well, but, um, let's touch on them yeah. now. Let's, what were the, what's, what's good about consulting? Somebody, you know, some of the listeners there, relatively junior, a lady who was asking me the other day, said, oh, I'm thinking about consulting. I was like, well, it would have been her first move, actually, out of a blue chip. And I said, what, so you've done one blue chip and then you're going to go out after four and a half, five years and go into consulting, maybe? She's like, yeah. I said, I'm a bit nervous. You had a you know range of different experiences with different treasury teams and stuff. She just had one. I said, look, the problem with that is people will say, well, so what have you experienced? What have you seen? And well, in the one place I've worked, this is how we did it. And I said, oh, you know, so, you know, that I, th- I said, I felt she needs to do some more experience. That was for her. But what did you find about consulting? Was it about sales or what was it about and stuff? I think the big four consultants, they all have different models and different focuses and uh, and they and they do change over time. I mean, I was brought in as an industry expert. So essentially you're brought in on a slightly different pay scale and it's part of the good thing is you've got all this knowledge and experience and you've actually got people who will listen. So mm. you, you know, you can put you know, you've got business development time that you can actually put together spreadsheets, PowerPoints, and, and to be honest, yeah, consulting teaches you all about presentation. The the quality of PowerPoints I put together when I have time, you know. A lot of them, I still use the same taglines and formats that, that I learned from from those two companies. And yeah, going out and talking to, to clients. I mean, you're often, I think the, the Americans call it the color man. Like you, mm. you've got the, the commentator who calls the plays, who's the person, the, the partner or the director selling. And you're the person who says, look, we've actually got a real live treasury here. So we're not just trying to sell you some expensive product that you don't actually need. We've got someone who can sit down with you and actually go through the nitty gritty and will understand your business better and you know, the trusted advisor and, and all those sort of things. So, I mean, I always thought, I was a useless salesman and I'd never wanted to go in sales, but then I spent four years as a consultant. And so I'm not, I'm not a great salesman, but I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I, all the things about getting down to what the needs are and, and, and those sort of things. And it also helps when you're the buyer, you know exactly what triggers the salesman needs to hear. And you can just, you can make a two hour presentation, get cut to 30 minutes by just, you answer the questions that they're getting around to asking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a great camaraderie and yeah, traveling to different places. And then I worked in Munich and Geneva and Paris. I did a nine month job there. I had a weird one. I worked for Standard Life up in Edinburgh as an assistant to the chief actuary, despite never having any actuarial background or insurance background or worked in Scotland. But it was it was a it was a fun three months, you know. It, it was quite good. So getting that variety and not sort of being stuck in an area. I mean, I think if you and I think you're giving the right advice there. You need to have seen a few things yourself, I and mean, you need to see when things are going well and things are going badly. Because a company there, the treasury is going well, they're not going to buy any consulting services. Yeah. You know, you need to see things that are broken that you can actually fix. And then you made the move. You done. You did two different consultancies: EY, Accenture, two good moves. But then you were like back to hardcore treasury, and then you were. So Suddenly, well, read, but then EMI, which I know was a challenging time, should we say? Over to you. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose just in finishing off on the consulting, yeah. point, the, the only trouble, and I think a lot of treasurers will find, is within 
sort of a big consulting organization is you're selling to the CFO, not the treasurer, right. because most treasurers, and I'm the same, you don't want to come a consultant coming in to show you up. Now, it's a it's the wrong attitude to take, mm. but essentially you need to, it needs to be accepted that you're doing a good job, but there's an area that you need some help on mm. or a project or something like that. So I think the people who do particularly well in treasury consulting, they have the relationships with the CFOs. And in many cases, that's because they're an accountant or they worked in banking or something like that. So you find there's very few treasury partners in consulting. Mm. They're generally from the banking lead or from the accounting or an audit lead. And so your career path is fairly restricted and you're, you're sort of dealing with someone who's putting you out to, to sell things that they don't necessarily understand themselves. So I recommend everyone should potentially do it. But if you're looking at a long-term career in treasury, plan on it being just a, a sort of interlude. Yeah. And I think that was it. I, I, I sort of missed the fact that I I was going to organizations and fixing things or I'd do some audit support or I'd identify problems and I couldn't really take the credit for it. I was just a helper. Yeah. I wasn't the ultimate decision maker and the person who could say, look, I did that. And I think also treasury being a specialist, smaller area, you're never going to get the wallet share. You know, I know that some guys used to do quite well when they used to get sort of bigger remits from say big banks and big reviews, but you come into a treasury and you know, we, you know, you're small and perfectly shaped. You know, like sort of you've got some, maybe they come in, do a review and fix your treasure management system or do some controls or do this. But it, the scale of the the wallet isn't just isn't big enough a lot of the time sort of thing. So, well, know. yeah, you're often the tip of the spear. You're yeah. brought in to sell some management consulting for 30 or 50,000, but the actual money is implementing SAP or putting in a system or some large risk management tool yeah. or something like that. And yeah, and, and that's generally got specialists who do that you're you're sort of on the edge helping it be done but you know that that, that doesn't pay the part the partners they, no. they, they don't make their income from uh, small treasury consulting small, gigs. yeah small gigs so then you return to core corporate treasury with a couple of interesting moves give me give us a quick run through of those Okay. I mean, just the, the REIT job, it was essentially they were just, they were going to spin off one of their divisions and that was setting up a treasury. And that, that it's interesting to me because that gave me a taste for how interesting and how exciting I find in starting from a blank piece of paper and building up what structure a treasury should have from simple things like where the treasury company is going to sit to what system would you get, how many people would you hire and job descriptions. Mm. And that was going really well for six weeks until the uh, spin off got cancelled. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I had a fun trip to Boston out of it. That was a that was a, nice. a nice visit. But yeah, then EMI came along, and EMI was my first exposure to private equity. My first exposure to, I think the banks call it call it distressed assets. Yeah, yeah. The owner had bought it at, in two thousand eight at the peak, and I mean, I don't think it's a secret that pretty much from day one, the the, the liabilities exceeded the assets. Yeah, uh, the, the the company was probably technically insolvent from day one, but. There was a good uh, three, four years of just trying to keep it going and trying to find a way way to get through. So that was, you know, I'd sort of had a break of about six years from being a group treasurer. So I was back to being a group treasurer again. We had a team of three people, cash manager, an analyst, and a... I think we we settled on risk manager, but essentially it was, it was everything else. Yeah, and, a lot. And project yeah. and IT and so forth. That's where I really learned about cash management. I'd never heard of a clean down before. Didn't understand how it all worked, but very quickly worked out those sort of requirements. And yeah, it, it was a global group. There was a treasury system. Sorry, explain like, Pat, was it clean down then? In a lot of revolving credit facilities, mm. there'll be a requirement that, well, in the old days, you had to pay off the RCF for the revolver for a period of 10 business days. So you're basically proving that 
you were using the facility as a working capital facility, not as permanent debt. I mean, we have, we have one of my current firm. The, the better way it works now is that if you can just show that your cash balance exceeded the outstanding amount that you had drawn, then you've cleaned down. Then you're down, so, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, bank, banks don't like when you permanently draw large parts of your RCF because they, they def- generally charge different margins and they've got different credit requirements. So mm. that's why a lot of facilities have those in. Yeah. And then you moved on to Temenos. I mean, the issue essentially with EMI is that we did go insolvent, temporarily owned by Citibank. Then I think, believe, Universal has taken that up. So Temenos, yeah, IT, well, it's a, basically, it's an IT firm, sells banking software, generally to second tier banks, because most of the larger banks have their own legacy systems that were probably built in the 60s and get built on. And it was a Swiss company, so, but with the headquarters in, in London. And essentially, it was a complex group. And we went through the time of the Greek collapse and a lot of countries shutting down their currencies and so forth. And so you had a lot of difficulties with repatriating your funds. But it's good practice for now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, again, it's it's one of those. I mean, there, there was only so much to do. I mean, we did uh, do a great refinancing, actually issued bonds into the Swiss private market, which is a, a different sort of funding that I hadn't done uh, before. With interest rates in Switzerland generally around zero, it was always attractive. I think with interest rates at the moment everywhere around zero, it might not not be, mm. but uh, it's certainly worth. If if there's a Swiss connection in any firms that people have, it's quite a good market that you can tap in if you if you're looking for Covenant Light funding. I think it's probably the best way to call it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and once that went in place, I mean, there is sort of a, a, a pattern with me. There's only so much to do there. It's, it was a listed company. Everything was fine. Put in a treasury this system. This is the usual you've been bored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so much you can do. And just decided to take a bit of a career break after that. Just took took a few years off, then did another consulting gig. And I mean, and, and that, that was Travelopia. So that's, again, it's a it's a spin-off from Chewy and it was private equity backed. Yeah. And yeah, again, that, that tapped into what I really love. It was no treasury function whatsoever. So it was, again, building up the infrastructure, the job description, putting in the treasury system, hiring the treasurer, the team. For that in place. So essentially, you know, here's the keys uh, that the Treasury's built. So that, that was a job that sort of started off being about three months and turned into a year and then sort of then gave me the opportunity to try a few different things. So you went from Travelopia to this latest role with Exalog. Perhaps explain what Ex- I didn't give you know the best description. I'm sure you can explain a bit more about the business. Explain what Exalog is, you're the treasurer there, you know, give give us a bit more insight if you would. Okay, with my eight months of experience in the oil industry, awesome. uh, so so my, my my apologies to any oil and gas people who <laughs> who when I get the terminology wrong. Uh, but essentially, uh, oil firms when they're exploring or they're producing oil, they they outsource a lot of the functions to to different firms. In our industry, the larger firms are people like uh, Halliburton or Schlumberger. What we do is two main parts of the business. In terms of exploration, we set up cabins with lots of wires and sensors and so forth that go down an exploratory well, and we review what comes out of that hole, essentially looking at the substructure, uh, looking at the various... Um, Bits and everything uh, everything else that you're yeah. extracting. Yeah, essentially. Right. I mean, we're, we're a, bit like, it's like, a bit like S&P and Moody's for oil fields. I mean, we're okay. essentially, look what's coming up, and we're saying, uh, look, if they say there's 10 billion barrels of oil, uh, we'll say, well, based on the, the geophysics of the of the terrain, that, that is true. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll do a report. We also do something called well intervention or slick line, and that's essentially support for when the, the wells are producing. We will be looking at the drill bit and to the pipes that are going down. I mean, one of the cool things we have is, you know, we've got software that we can tell you when your drill bit's going to fail because obviously a, a multi-million pound piece of equipment that explodes in a well is very expensive, but you don't want to be replacing it 
when it's only half used mm, mm. Uh, because they're, they're up there. So essentially, we you know we were we were started by some career veterans who set up a company called Geo Services, which they sold to Schlumberger, and they essentially wanted to get back into that industry. I mean, they they they're world experts, mm. and so with with Blue Water Energy, it's a private equity firm. They essentially started buying and building the company all over the very parts of the world, including you know, Italy and Asia, and about. In May of last year, the company sort of went through a transformational acquisition. It bought the mud logging uh, assets from a company called Weatherford, which doubled the size of the business and basically gave us that footprint across uh, 35, 40 companies wow. and made us quite substantial in the in the Middle East. So we're essentially in North America, Latin America, Middle East, Italy, small parts of the rest of Europe and and Asia. So mm. we've got this we've got this global footprint. Mm. We're now you know. Turnover doubled and so forth, and so it was. It was sort of time to to upgrade the treasury and uh, sort of get a better position to be able to cope with the greater complexity. And when you did that, you know, you knew it was coming along and stuff like that. What were you focusing on? We were saying, right, actually, number one, different treasury system, or number one, we need more staff, or you know, what was the sort of thought process? Because again, we'll have listeners today similar situation what were the what was the key thing in the back of your mind and again maybe coming from your consulting days knowing how to assess a treasury what did you think what did you decide to do sort of nails on the head it wasn't going to be a permanent gig i essentially started at the end of october and i was going to be an interim essentially to sort of put out any bushfires get things controlled for you know, the year-end covenants, get the cash management going and so forth. The decision on the treasury system being almost made, it needed to be confirmed. So I spent probably the first couple of months just doing like acting as a consultant, like mm. doing the day-to-day job of just making sure people could make payments and cash was in the right place. But it was like, okay, so this is the sort of structure you need. These are the issues you've got with your existing debt facility. This is what you need to look at for your risk management, you know, things like that, putting together like a, a job description and so forth. And yeah, and just, we, were, we were interviewing people for the role at, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I mean, this one's slightly off topic. It sort of came down to, I think there was just a really good cultural fit with the team that was there and the, and the, and the people I report to and so forth. So I think we all just came to the conclusion that whilst I was probably a bit senior for the for the role, for the size of the company, it, it was a good idea to have some certainty that I would be there for a period of time and I was quite happy to sign up. And from then on, I actually then started managing the treasury as if I was going to be there. You know, it's one of those, it wasn't like I was less diligent, but when you know you have to push these things through, you start focusing a lot more on your timeframes and what the spend is and the budget and yeah. all those tasks. Mm-hmm. To answer your question, uh, the first thing was get the treasury system in place. There's still a few things where we're finalizing with that. Proper liquidity management. We had cash flow forecasting, but it was more, I mean, a lot of cash flow forecasts in companies that don't have a treasury, it's a bit more accounting focused. You know, they'll be looking at weeks and so forth. We were probably giving too much information to the lenders and not giving them what they actually wanted. So it was, it was more about focusing on compliance, looking at our foreign exchange exposures, looking at the the debt profile, uh, what the costs were, and then very much as you know, we had some management changes and so forth, it's getting... I mean, you know, we, we put out a budget in February, which lasted three weeks because of COVID, okay. but it was very much about uh, helping support the business in terms of its working capital needs to grow to the targets that uh, that our shareholders have. Yeah. So looking at the future, because we were approaching the end of today's episode and everything else, but, you know, before we get there, you know, what, what do you see as being key within Treasury? You know, this isn't the three, usually at the end of the show, which we'll do in a minute, but the three things, but, you know, what's your, you've got this depth of experience across all different Treasuries. You've been Treasury consulting, you've been private back, you've been PLC. What's your ethos around Treasury then? You know, what, what do you sort of see it as? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question, Mike. I mean, I think, in, and it's one of those, it's, it's a couple of principles, and I, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, f- for example, when I look at cash management, I mean, it's a lot like air traffic control in that uh, you have funds coming in and out, and essentially your job is to essentially make sure everybody gets the money they need to make their payments on time and then anything that's not required to be there. So you're sort of a... And it's a, it's a term that gets used by consultants and uh, strong in the accounting word, I mean, a business partner, and I think it's mm. misused, but there's a lot of ivory, t- ivory tower treasury. I mean, I think less these days. I think the culture has very much changed is that we're a support function. Our job is to make sure that in terms of getting the money that they need in the right currency at the right time for as a short a period as possible, mm. sorting out their banking needs. If there's you know, when it comes to risk, I mean, a lot of treasurers, I think, make the mistake that you can stop bad things happening to your company, where if there's a permanent change in a currency position or an interest rate or in, in a regulatory framework, all you can do is give the business time to adapt. Mm. You know, if oil prices are now uh, $40, when I joined the company, they were above 60, mm. you know, mm. briefly we had zero. You can't hedge that away. You can give the company time, you know, and I think there'll be a lot of treasures they've learned through the COVID is, you know, you, you might have your hedging program in place, but what if your activity stopped and you don't need those hedges, then you've potentially caused an issue for your balance sheet. So mm-hmm. you're protecting the company from the immediate impacts of bad things and you're facilitating the people who are out in the field who need to make the things or sell the things and so forth that they don't have to deal with the hassle of a guarantee or beg for, for funds or be sort of left left out of the loop when you're making a change in your banking decision and mm-hmm. so forth. And I think that's a problem Treasury has sometimes in justifying its existence is that we should be able to make the business runs smoother and focus on actually generating the profits that we use the cash for rather than, you know, sort of being the head office and just expecting compliance because it's in the manual. Yeah, because you must comply, that's it. Yeah, and that's it. And I think, you know, when, when you, I mean, I've, I've, I've learned the hard way because it's always hard to justify spend on a system or on a process or something like that because you can't put into numbers exactly what the benefits are going to be. Everyone just sees it as a cost centre. Mm-hmm. So I think being able to articulate that you're there to support the business is a key for getting those sort of advancements. And so that brings us neatly along to our top three, two or three tips. Uh, You know, we'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. But if someone is looking back through your background and they say, oh, do you know, I'd like to do that because you've got this great variety. I know when uh, Pat and I, we meet up for regular beers and put the world to rights of treasury. But I find a lot of the time it's amazing the different, because Pat Pat draws stuff from so many different areas. You know, it's like, oh, when I was in consulting, yeah, that's the way we would approach it. But then, yeah, when I was at such and such, because you've you've had this depth of experience, which a lot of treasurers don't have. You know, they might be one company still for 10 or 12 years, a couple of different jobs, but they don't really have that exposure. You've had it in spades. So, you know, with yourself, what what other tips would you give to people? Yeah, I mean, I'll sort of caveat it with, we're all all different. I, I I was someone who sort of, Grew up in, I mean, Adelaide's not a small town, but in the middle of nowhere, and I, I just, I just like the the variety and so forth. So, yeah, and 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 not not having children, having the opportunity to invest in other things and so forth, it, it means I could take more risks. I think it's, you know, if if you're struggling with a, a mortgage and you've got kids and you think about putting them through university and so forth, I wouldn't listen to a single word I say. <laughs> you know, I, I would do the exact opposite. But I mean, I think treasury should be fun. You need to go to jobs where things aren't aren't stable because essentially accountants can run a company that's that's doing fine you know issue, issuing new debt 
is fun. It often gets taken over by the CFO, but you know, that's just the nature of the beast. But building a good cash flow forecasting process and improving the cash most regional controllers or territory controllers, I mean, they're useless at forecasting because it's, it's not really that important. But mm. actually meeting people and getting out of the office and going to a site and getting, you know, go to a factory or go to the sales team or, or those sort of things. Because, I mean, as you say, I've got, I've got lots of interesting stories and, I, and, I've, and I've loved almost every minute of it because, you know, I, I understand eight or nine different businesses and, you know, in a year's time, I should know a lot more about oil and gas. It's, it makes what is essentially a job that involves sitting in front of a, a computer playing with spreadsheets and entering data and putting together PowerPoints mm. far more exciting when you can actually see that you're benefiting other people. So I think it's good to probably start off in a blue chip or if you're already in consulting and you've started down the accounting path or something like that, if you're still under 30 and so forth and you can take that risk, it's worth going to either a PE firm or a distressed firm and so forth that will need change that you don't have to spend a year putting together board presentations to get done it needs to get done now mm-hmm. and being you know being next to that fire it will forge you know you'll work out what you're good at and what you're not good at and you'll actually find that you love getting up in the morning and going in even though you're basically just balancing a big bank account mm-hmm. <laughs> so amazing stuff there from Pat if you as we say if you want to connect with him on LinkedIn put it in the show notes so you can connect there you know but suffice to say he's got some really interesting stuff and uh, I think you know he'd be great to have in your network and everything else sir as always looking forward to a post-lockdown beer and catch up but thanks for your time today more than a pleasure Mike and yes we'll, we'll do it as soon as uh, Boris lets us yes as soon as he does <laughs> cheers mate thanks very much okay